This is the Education Gadfly Show. Like normally, producer Audrey has the best facial features, but right now you're killing it. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Ann Navarro of Education Reform, Alyssa Schwenk. Okay, you've thrown some strange things at me in the past that I haven't quite glommed onto, but yeah. who is that? Uh, she is the woman who is a, she, she's a Republican, but she's been on all the TV shows criticizing Trump and, and you know, saying it like it is. Oh, did yeah. I say, I did I get I her name this. right? Is I that saw, right? No, I think I saw this. I've just like purposefully like tuned out of yeah, election yeah, coverage yeah. I'm for a re- last week or I'm so. I'm a researcher. I don't own a television. Okay, uh, Audrey, if you could check that out. I believe it's right. <laughs> Ann Navarro. I think that's her name. And, uh, you know, getting a lot of credit for sort of, uh, some would say, just calling it like it is, right? Which, which is something Good Donald Trump her. says that he does. Yeah. He says it like it is. Yeah, he says that Hillary check. Clinton is a fighter. Fact. Well, that is true, but I think fact trackers would disagree with many of the things that he tells like it is. So I uh, can't talk about the election because uh, Gary uh, here at Fordham won't let me because something about our IRS status. That's fine because you know what? We're taping this before the debate. Uh, so we can't right. weigh in on that. Who knows? Right. Maybe education will come up, but let's all, can we all agree that that would be a bad thing at this point or that no good could come of that at this point? I mean, I think the farther this election stays away from education, the better. I don't also don't think there's a ton for them to necessarily get in the thick about, especially at the K-12 level. Yes. Well said. Okay. But we get into the thick of it here at the K-12 level. It is now time for, oh, by the way, I, I almost forgot. David Griffith is here with us as well. David. Thank He's you. I'm here too. Yes. yes, he has. Research that was the voice talks. you heard, David Griffith. Okay. It is now time for Ed Reform Update. So that, that was really not the smoothest intro I've ever had here on the <laughs> podcast, but thanks for following along with me anyway, gang. All right. What we are talking about this week, uh, I have called it the Batman versus Superman of education policy. It is the growth versus proficiency debate. Right. Which one's which? Uh, well, in I, real life or in the comments? I always liked Superman better, so that I want to be growth. Far, I agree. Hey, Batman's a far better hero in aren't like the Marvel comics the ones that we should be like trying to emulate uh, these days? I, I don't know. I, I can't keep them all straight. <laughs> but here's what I do know is that growth is the way to go. Now, we have stacked the decks here. Uh, let me explain. <laughs> yeah, no, this feels a little bit like... Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, last week, Aaron Churchill, who is one of our Fordham colleagues who works in our Ohio office, he and I wrote a piece trying to write the definitive piece for why states should use growth models instead of proficiency rates to evaluate their schools or actually under No Child Left Behind, you got to basically use both, but why growth rates should count a whole lot more. Like we said, three, five, even nine times as much as proficiency rates. Uh, And we looked at Ohio's system to help us do that. Then a few days later, Checker and Chad Aldis, uh, Chad also from Ohio office, wrote a response, a rebuttal. Mm -hmm. where they made the case that proficiency rates are still valuable and should count at least half. The reason the decks are stacked is because I know David Griffith as a smart (laughs) researcher that he is and just super smart guy, guy who can do math. Also believes again to ambush. Yeah. Also believes that student growth is the way to go. Yeah, I do, Mike. Um, And uh, since no one's here to defend the other side, let's go ahead and. Well, well, wait, wait, Alyssa's here. (laughs) Is she invisible? Are you going (laughs) to? Okay. Let me just make the case for growth and why I don't get it. I don't. I, I don't get it. I don't get the you achievement don't get people. The, case for the, the proficiency people. I don't get the the achievement people. I really don't. 
Proficiency. Uh, proficiency. We're all here for achievement, I think. Okay. But status, the the status folks, because the, status, the people who believe we should measure school effectiveness based on the percentage of kids hitting some level that we call proficient or maybe on track for college and career readiness. Yeah, there seems to be some just concern that if we give, I guess, high grades to low performing schools in, in the sense that the kids aren't getting where they need to be. Right. Uh, that somehow we're sending the wrong message. Yep. Um, and, and I just... The soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. And I just don't follow because any any school that, that gets a high grade, you know, based on growth is is doing the best it, it possibly can by kids already. Mm-hmm. And, and giving that school a low grade isn't going to magically make it higher performing mm-hmm. or give the, the kids some magical, you know, key to a, a high performing school in the suburbs. Uh, or give their parents the ability to move to that neighborhood. So I just don't understand. I don't understand the theory of action. Uh, and conversely, it's like maybe we're we're sending the wrong message to to, to parents. Um, I, I just I don't follow who is harmed specifically mm-hmm. uh, by basing by basing school grades on growth. Who is going to do what wrong and why? So it actually sounds like you're a little bit more Team Robert Pondicio, who came out with a third piece on our blog, I think yesterday, um, about same sports, different grade. And if you read all three back to back, you'll see why we are all working at a think tank and Mm -hmm. not being professional athletes, because there's a lot of sports metaphors in here. Um, I kind of have to push back on that in terms of like the all growth all the time. If we're giving students A's, I think there needs to be a message to parents that is really clear and transparent about what's happening and what's going on in their schools. And if you're getting A's, because you're seeing growth, but the kids still aren't on track for college, like all the parents are going to see is that A, and they're going to get trapped in Lake Wobegon, as Checker and Chad point out in their piece. We're giving the school A's? Yeah. Okay. So I guess my question is, do you think that's so much worse than what's happening right now? I mean, our parents, I don't know, parents are already sending their kids to these schools, uh, and we're giving them, we're sending them the message that mm-hmm. their school is failing. Many of them are still attending that, sending their kids to those schools. Yeah. All right. So let, let's get specific here. Okay. Let, let's imagine there is a high school. Okay. It is in a high poverty neighborhood. All the kids it serves are poor. Uh, and the vast majority of those kids come into that high school several grade levels behind. Mm-hmm. All right. That high school, let's say, does an, an amazing job helping kids make progress on academic achievement over time. Okay. So they come in four grade levels behind. By the time they graduate high school, most of them are now only two grade levels behind, okay? But not a single one of those kids is actually college and career ready at the end of high school, okay? And the question is, is that a fantastic school deserving of an A, or is that a failing school deserving of an F? Or do you split the difference and weight these things equally and say, it's really a C school? I would absolutely give it a C in that circumstance. Is it as a high school, it's supposed to be preparing kids for the real world and life beyond call it life beyond high school. And if they're not ready for college, if they're not ready for career, they should know that. And it doesn't need to be the school's fault because Alyssa, they're- you are so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is the wrong answer. <laughs> if Checker was here, Checker would agree with me. He would. He would. That's what they argued. I'm like, yeah, who, yeah. Do you want to explain why this is such crazy thinking or deep? I, 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 I can keep trying, but I, I'm running out of words here. I mean, giving the school an A, I mean, I, I'm not even sure that parents would know. I mean, I I, I just... I, okay, what, what is wrong? When I was in school a bajillion years ago, I got a grade in English and I got a... bajillion a, years ago. <laughs> a grade in English and a grade in math. And I knew that I was better in English class than in math class. Why can't we give both grades? 
Well, that that I would agree with, and that we can't give both grades or just only both grades right now, according to the Department of Education, which is, a, I think, a bad reading of the law. I would be fine if you wanted to say this school gets an A for growth, it gets an F for college and career readiness. I would be okay with that. If I had to say which, though, if you had to do a summative grade, what should that school get? It should get an A. It should get an A plus. Oh my God, it's doing amazing work for kids. And I would want parents to know that they should send their kids there because they're going to make progress. You don't think that, that you, yeah. you really not think that a school that is catching kids up multiple grades is doing an amazing, is doing an amazing job. Do you really not believe Because that? otherwise, Alyssa, every single high poverty high school gets an F automatically. They just automatically get an F. I mean, that, which is crazy because some of them are doing so much better than the other ones. And if we don't tell parents which of those schools to go to, how are they supposed to know? All right. I've, hey. I've got a, I've got a solution to this. All right. And I really haven't written about this, but try this out. Okay. Here's how I think it should work. Every school in the country, they get a grade for growth. They get a grade for achievement. Okay. And then when it comes time to smushing those grades together, if we must smush them together and have a final grade, the state uses whichever grade is higher. No. Okay. So it's like no, your listen, ACT score solution. No, no, no. This is why it makes sense in this case. For high poverty schools, what that will mean most likely is that their grade for growth is what counts. And believe me, there's going to be plenty of high poverty schools that still get Fs because there's no growth. There's, I mean, in Ohio, there's like 60% of the high poverty schools are like that. Okay. Or affluent schools in the suburbs where all the kids are doing well, which is for all kinds of reasons. Okay. But so they get an A because of their achievement. And that's fine. That matches what people think they already know about those schools. That they're good schools and they are. They're fine. They're good schools. Okay. So you, again, you err on that side. I promise you will still have plenty of DNF schools that have neither high achievement nor high growth, but you won't have the situation where every high poverty school automatically gets a low grade. Case closed. I will consider that solution. Boom. But let me just throw in one other potential solution you along are, the same lines. Your facial features, like I just wish today more than any other day that we have recorded this vlog. Like normally producer Audrey has the best facial features, but right now you are killing it. Continuing with my thought. <laughs> I would say if we have to pick, right, we go with growth. And there's nothing about basing the grade on growth that prevents states from prominently reporting yes, achievement. Right? Correct. I think the notion that somehow parents aren't going to find out whether a school is high achieving or not mm -hmm. is crazy. Uh, parents, parents are going to find out. Specifically, the parents that might actually be harmed by sending their kid to a low-achieving school when their kid is already high-achieving, mm -hmm. those parents are definitely going to find out, right? And any other parents, right? Like, say you're a, a parent of a low-achieving kid and you accidentally send your kid to a high-achieving school, right, without thinking about the match. Well, honestly, that, that's okay. That's an acceptable outcome, Right. So I, I just, the, the, the people who might be harmed by not knowing the level of at which students are achieving are precisely the people who are guaranteed to find out anyway. I'm not really sure what David just said, but I, I still have to think about it, Mike. Yeah, okay. Okay, good. Well, there is a lot more to dig into. Check out our pieces on the blog. Again, we are up to three pieces by Fordham folks, plus a letter to the editor from David Steiner, former commissioner in New York. Uh, this debate will go on forever, it seems. But hey, it's relevant because states are going to have to make these decisions right now. And if anything, I think we can all agree that growth should be at least 50%. And David, there's almost no states that actually are doing that today. So let's all agree that there's, at the very least, states need to uh, dramatically increase the weighting for growth. We would argue, get it close to 100%. Others would say 50%. It surely should not be 
like 20 or 25%, which is what it is today in most states. We seem to be unanimous on this point, Mike. Yes. All of Fordham sings as one. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. That is all the time we have for Ed Reform Update. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. <laughs> Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. All right, so we've been having a very heated debate. Alyssa feels like we we ambushed her and teamed up uh, against Uh-oh. her. Two all right, against let, one, all right, definition he, of Amber. All right, Amber, let's see if you get this question right. Okay. If you have a high, a high school, so there's nothing but poor kids, okay? Mm-hmm. All the kids come into high school four grade levels behind. Yes. They all graduate high school two grade levels behind. Mm-hmm. All right, but nobody graduates college and career ready. Right. Should that school get an A? because it's helping kids make tremendous progress mm-hmm. and F because nobody's college and career ready or you take those two things and smush them together and give the school I a C. I would give the school a C. Ha! I would. Oh, are you I serious? Would, I would, I would. Amber, what? the right answer. And I'd, and I'd make sure, by the way, oh, that you measure growth where it means something because having been on the other side of this and talked about having these long yeah. growth conversations, sometimes when you get below the smoke and mirrors, Growth is like, you know, one percentile point right, from, like, right. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it sounds great to have growth, Mike, but unless you really know how much growth, and then that gets really weedy, right? These weedy conversations mm-hmm. with parents yes. and how do you explain it? And then, you know, a C, this is a school that's been helping kids make tremendous progress. You're every, know, every high poverty know, high school, but they're still it's, it's going to be impossible. So, so it's impossible for a high poverty school to get an A. Is I that mean, what you're saying? Come on. They're still, they still have a real world. I agree. They still have a real world. You got to live in the real world. You got to wear the big boy mm-hmm. pants. So I think there's a, I think there's an argument that you need to give them a C. And I know a C, like, what does that mean? But eh, you got to choose. Hashtag Team Amber and Jeff. Man, I'm telling you. <laughs> You've come to Alyssa's rest. I'm just flabbergasted. And I missed the whole conversation. Uh, Next time you'll have to come yeah, at the beginning. I mean, I mean, how much growth is a key question that gets mm-hmm. lost sometimes. Well, that is fair. That yes. is true. All right. All right, what you got for us? We got a new study out by Calder by David Figlio and colleagues that examines the implementation of Florida's third grade reading guarantee. I have not seen anything about this in the news, but mm-hmm. what a cool study. Mm-hmm. They study whether the policy is enforced differently based on a student's socioeconomic status. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. A little background for our listeners. Florida legislators enacted a statewide grade retention policy in 2002. It required in the absence of an exemption that the students had couldn't be promoted from grade three to four unless they demonstrated at least a level two on the FCAT reading exam. Okay, so that was the cutoff. Uh, There were several reasons, however, why a student might qualify for an exemption despite not having achieved that level two. Things like you were limited English proficient and you haven't received enough years in your ESL, ESL program, so you haven't got enough. Um, They have, uh, what was the other one? Oh, they have certain disabilities or they've received reading remediation for two years and they've already been retained twice. So if you fall in one of those buckets, Mm -hmm. right, you could be exempt. Or you're able to uh, obtain an exemption if you have acceptable reading performance on another reading test. Mm -hmm. The state board says is okay. In this case, I think it's the Stanford 10. So you got to get a certain 51st percentile, I think. Or you can demonstrate proficiency through a teacher-developed portfolio. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Wow, right? Lots of options. Lots of options. Analysts match birth data from babies born in Florida from 1992 through 2002 to demographic and academic data for students attending public schools through 2000-2008. They track eight cohorts of students totaling over 879,000 kids. 
big, huge population, okay? And since Florida uses a strict cutoff for determining retention, they can compare the differences across students of different backgrounds who just make the cutoff and are subsequently not affected by the policy, which is also called regression discontinuity. We have a lot of these studies lately. Mm-hmm. All right. So in other or words, RD for sure. RD, RD. Okay. Uh, so first, real quickly, the descriptive data. All right. And that shows a proportion of retained <laughs> students in the first year increased overall from three to 15%. And among those who scored below the cutoff from 11 to 67%. Wow. Huge. Over the six years of the study where they had good data, the proportion retained dropped from 15 to 6% mm-hmm. during 2005, owing partly, by the way, to fewer kids scoring below that cutoff. And then it's increased slightly since then. Moreover, during the same six years, the percentage receiving exemptions more than doubled. All right, 26 mm-hmm. to 54%. All right, lots of descriptive information. But the big wallapalooza, okay, the key mm-hmm. finding, controlling for exemption eligibility, scoring right below the cutoff, increases the probability of being retained 14% more for kids whose mothers have less than a high school degree compared to those kids whose moms have a bachelor's degree or more. And then they dig in and say, okay, what might be going on here? And they find that the differences are driven mostly by the fact that kids of well-educated moms are more likely to be promoted based on the results of which one? Teacher portfolio. Teacher portfolio. Big fat loophole. Um, which are more subjective, obviously, than some of the other modes I told you guys about. And then they say, okay, well, other research also shows that families in lower eco- socioeconomic classes, they tend to be less effective advocates for their kids, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, they're less likely than middle school families to request a specific teacher. And mm-hmm. as and being a teacher, and you probably know this, Alyssa, oh, yeah. you always get some parent that wants you for a teacher. Or if you're crappy, maybe it doesn't want you for a teacher. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, they say, you know what, that's probably what's going on here. So then, I mean, we can talk about this more as I shut up. Um, but I think what was a little bit confusing, right, is the research on retention overall um, is kind of mixed. And we know, uh, it was, I think it was um, Winters, right, maybe with Jay Green, did this study on, um, yeah, a few years ago on Florida retention policy and found overall that it was effective, but that it faded out over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people worry about, well, there's a stigma attached to mm-hmm. retaining my kid, and so I don't like that. But, I mean, I think what we see here is, regardless of what you think about the virtue, virtues, virtues mm-hmm. are <laughs> negative, right, about retention, um, the well-educated moms in Florida are working the system. Yep. I did yep. see a couple of news articles, maybe six months or so, about this policy in Florida and how it related to parents who were opting their kids out. And mm-hmm. a lot of those opt-out parents... We're not taking the exam. So they were getting letters from the state mm-hmm. being like, you're going to be retained. And they were not mm-hmm. happy. Right. And they went into power mom mode. Mm-hmm. A new new law just passed in Michigan to allow the, the, for, for the third grade retention. It's interesting to me. You know, it, it think, makes me think of red shirting in mm-hmm. part because that's something that uh, my family perhaps mm-hmm. uh, engaged in. And yeah. I think, I mean, the, my assumption is that would be more common among mm-hmm. upper middle class families mm-hmm. to hold their kids back a year. I mean, mm-hmm. it takes financial resources to be able to pay for another year of preschool or childcare or right. something like that. Uh, and so that's another one where, where the, the sort of the ethos is that, well, if you think your child is, might be a little behind or not quite ready, you, you do, you know, you know, don't send them to kindergarten, mm-hmm. but 
yikes, oh, they're already in third grade, all their friends are third graders, right. they're not going to be able to go on to fourth grade. That is, a, And they're going to be with the kids if you redshirt them that they've been with, right? Yeah, so, that's yeah, right. Yeah. It's not like nobody's really going to yeah. know. You're also more likely if you're a family of, of affluent means to if your child is exhibiting, you know, some signs that they might have ADHD or dyslexia, like really get them in and get that IEP yeah. to prevent them from even falling yeah. into, to give them the first exception. You know, all of this is based still on this assumption <laughs> and will it always be with us that mm-hmm. we just have the same, you know, k- kids are in a classroom right. based on their age. Right? Right. <laughs> that, right. You know, the people who are out there advocate for competency-based education, yes. this drives them nuts, it right? Drive them nuts. And it yes. is, it, it is, I mean, you could imagine a school where they really say, look, we're just not going to, we're not going to group kids mm-hmm. by age. We're going to group them based mm-hmm. on where they're at. And this problem goes away to some degree. I mean, right. It's just, we do feel, you know, it's like, how comfortable are we having, you know, kids who are four foot, four and a half feet tall right. in the same classroom as kids who are three feet tall? It's, you know. It's yeah, a but a study I did a few weeks ago says they won't be bullied, right? They, because, they, huh. they, well, that's, that's right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There's a big enough difference. They just yeah. leave the kids alone. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. But I thought it was interesting, you know, and, and it's hard to say like, okay, is this good or not good. Yeah, you know, and, it just depends on what you think about retention. And if you're a parent advocate for low-income kids, you know, let's say a lot of groups out there, increasing number who are helping parents certainly make choices, but but also just help them understand how to work the system mm-hmm. too. I mean, do you, what advice do you give parents? Should they be working the system to get their yeah. kid promoted or not? Right, or I mean, not. I, do we know what what is actually likely to be better for their child? Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know your own kid. <sighs> but I mean, if it's the fact that these low-income parents aren't equipped as much with information that you can yeah. work the system or how to work the system, then mm-hmm. that's a problem, right? We all need mm-hmm. equal opportunity advocacy skills, yeah. which doesn't really happen. Oh, no. And time and the ability to get off work and go to the meetings and things like that. Yeah. That takes up. Um, that's a capacity issue as well. All right. Excellent study. Thanks for bringing it to us, Amber. Yeah, thank you. All right. That's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwing. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.